I grew up in the 1970s, which means that I grew up in the absolute heyday of what I lovingly call end times cheese. Uh, I, I grew up with books like The Late Great Planet Earth uh, by Hal Lindsey, uh, another book, follow-up, called The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, which, by the way, apparently it wasn't, uh, but he was writing those books. I grew up at a time when a guest preacher could fill a building if he had a good message about the second coming. I went to camps where the evangelistic night at camp usually included a scary sermon about being left behind. I knew the words to Larry Norman's song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. I had a t-shirt that said, when the rapture come, this man will be out of sight. Super cool. Chicks dug me in junior high. Now, implicit in all of that was the notion that if you gave your life to Jesus, you wouldn't have to suffer like everyone else. But when I became a young man and actually required to study Revelation for my education, I began to wonder if anybody had actually read the book. Because the book teaches not that you won't suffer if you give your life to Jesus. It teaches that you will suffer if you give your life to Jesus. In fact, it is unusual if you never have to suffer for Jesus. And I've come to believe that the thing that Christians fear the most is suffering for their faith. I mean, we lose our cotton-picking minds if we're merely inconvenienced because of our faith. I believe to the core of my being that almost all of the problems that manifest themselves in evangelical life today are the result of American Christians being neurotically, almost pathologically scared that their faith will cost them anything at all. But it's not a matter of if suffering will come. It's a matter of when it comes. That is the word of Christ to the church today because that is the word of Christ to the ancient church at Smyrna. So if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 8. And it looks like uh, the end times are coming uh, on us outside right now as dark as it's getting. Maybe that's just a little dramatic effect for everything. Maybe we can get a big thunderclap in here in a minute and it'll be terrific. All right. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 2. And the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Folks, suffering will come. The Smyrnaeans were told to expect it. They were told to expect to die for it. They were not being told to hang on for a little bit and then the trial would end. That's a misunderstanding of the symbolism of 10 days. The number 10 uh, represents uh, completion. And so they're being told that when the trial that you are facing reaches its conclusion, you will die. 
The prison terms that they were facing were akin to the prison term that Paul was facing, writing about in 2 Timothy. He was not being held uh, to be released. He was being held uh, until his execution date could be assigned. It was tough in Smyrna. So what's going on there? Well, two things that were actually feeding the persecution that they were facing. First, Smyrna was one of the leading cities of the emperor cult at the time. They were one of the very first cities to actually fully embrace the the worship of the emperor. As a matter of fact, they had actually won a competition over 11 other cities to be the first to build a temple to Caesar Augustus and his wife during the reign of Tiberius, and it was built just a few years before Jesus began his public ministry. So the Roman population of Smyrna would eagerly prosecute anyone who refused to say Jesus is Lord because they were scared that it might cause them to lose most favored status with Rome and the Caesar. They had to keep everything moving right along in their emperor worship. But as our verses also allude to, the Jews in Smyrna were hostile toward Christians as well. And it was actually a means of self-preservation. For many, many years, uh, Christianity was lumped into Judaism. And because Judaism was an official religion of Rome, Christians had a protected status. By the time you get to uh, this period, when the book of Revelation is being written, there starts to be a separation and Christianity begins to be seen as its own thing and was therefore receiving persecution from Rome. But the Jews wanted to really, really make sure that everybody knew that those people aren't with us. And so they, having cultivated this safe life as one of the officially recognized religions of Rome, did everything they could to make sure that the Christians were seen as being separate. So they persecuted them. And frequently, what you would see are the Jews and the secular government coming together to actually go after Christians. In fact, one of the most Famous martyrdoms that took place in all of Christian history took place in the second century in Smyrna when a church leader by the name of Polycarp refused to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. The Jews collected the wood on the Sabbath and then the citizens of Smyrna lit the fire. This is what Jesus was telling the church. He was telling them, don't hang on and live. Don't hang on and it'll all be okay. He's telling them, hang on. And then die well. And that kind of thing is actually still going on today. There's an ongoing academic debate uh, that nerds like me care about, about how to define martyrdom. And it actually hinges on defining martyrdom by the motive of the one doing the killing or the motive of the one being killed. It's the difference between someone being killed for actually sharing their faith and someone being called by God to be a missionary somewhere and either succumbing to disease or being in an accident as a result of their obedience. Regardless of how you define it, though, thousands and thousands die each year as a direct result of being obedient to their faith. Now, the likelihood of that happening to anyone in this room or your children or anyone else you know is infinitesimally small. Could it happen? Yes, of course it could happen. If I take this book seriously, then it absolutely will happen one of these days. But is it likely to happen to you? Not likely. 
The Western world's founded on religious liberty. America has constitutional religious liberty. Most of the countries of Europe and all of the ones that were frequently touted as being like becoming have constitutional religious liberty. It would take a fundamental redefinition of freedom before that could happen. Again, could it happen? Yes. Some of those freedoms are actually feeling pressure today. Will it happen someday? Yes, if I take this book seriously. Is it likely to happen to you, your religious liberty, be completely taken away? No. But I'll tell you what could happen, what I think is likely to happen, what is actually already happening in some respects. People who profess faith in Jesus Christ will be marginalized. Will we still be able to come to worship? Absolutely. But will we have to pay taxes on our property to the tune of multiple six figures a year for Blue Valley? Yes. But we'll still be able to come to worship. But holding to a biblical stance on the issues of the day may lead to your personal marginalization. You may not get the promotion because they find out where you go to church, or you may be forced to resign your job because of an unbiblical stance your employer is requiring you to take that you can't take. You may be isolated relationally in your neighborhood. Those who say they are Christians but are not might exclude you because of how you challenge their hypocrisy. All of that could happen. I think it may happen. I think it already is happening. And some of the principles for enduring it are given to us in this letter to the future martyrs of the faith in Smyrna. And I think we can all learn from them as we face our marginalization today. First, if we're going to make it through, we need to see Jesus for who he is. See Jesus for who he is. Look at verse 8, if you would, please. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. One of the things that I have said about the letters is that Jesus, in the beginning, always characterizes himself in a way that feeds his overall message to that particular church. And to start this letter, he identifies himself as being the first and the last. Now, that's not a new phrase in the book of Revelation. Jesus uh, reveals himself in that way to John in chapter 1. But remember, Christ identifies himself uniquely, so there is a unique thing he's trying to drive at here. He is saying it here because he wants the church in Smyrna to remember that he is the eternal one. And as the eternal one, he alone is the sovereign ruler over all of human history. And the point he's driving home with this is that the basis for the hope that the church at Smyrna needed to have was rooted in the truth that Christ superintends every circumstance, and he superintends every person. It was real easy for them, feeling this enormous pressure, to think that their persecutors were the ones in control. But he's reminding them at the outset, they are not. I am. I am the first and the last. I'm the one sovereign over all of this. And then he leads them to remember that he was the one who died and came to life. And the reason he is doing this is very easy to spark when you know the background. He, he is saying that the reason that I need to hold myself out to you as the one who was dead and came to life is because some of you are going to be facing death. And if you've given your life to me, the life that I was raised to will be shared with you. I'm the one who is not only sovereign over all of human history, I'm the one who's sovereign over life and death and can give life after death. 
All of this reminds us that when suffering comes, we cannot lose sight of Jesus. We have to fix our attention on Him. Last month at the Antioch campus, I challenged that campus to memorize Colossians 3, 1 through 17 as a way to kind of have a, a personal life buoy in all the uncertain, un, uncertain times that we are facing. The reason I encourage them to do that is because that passage of Scripture, perhaps better than any other, teaches us what we need to do to fix our attention on Jesus. It begins, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, sit, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is Paul saying in Colossians? He's saying when you face uncertainty and when you face difficulty and if you face trial because of your commitment to follow me, don't put your attention on all the chaos. Put your mind where everything is fixed, fixed in Jesus and understand that your reality is his reality. When Christ your life appears, then you will appear, Paul says, with him in Glory. When suffering comes, don't run around panicked. Set your mind on Jesus. See Jesus for who He is. And then, when suffering comes, see tribulations for what they are. It's interesting here how Christ speaks of knowing the tribulation. The word itself, tribulation, implies a crushing burden. It is not a small word. This is a strong, strong word. It, it, it catches our attention. But what catches our attention more is how it's used almost in passing. Here's what I mean. There's no shock value when Jesus uses the word. He's not saying, I can't believe the crushing burden that you are facing. Instead, it's, it's more like, I know. I know. I know you're going through that. In fact, the tribulation that they are experiencing is actually something assumed. It reminds us of Peter's words in 1 Peter 4.12 when he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Or it reminds us of the words of Jesus in John 15.18, If the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. So part of seeing tribulations for what they are, at least as it relates to the opposition that we might face for living out our faith in Jesus, is to see such thing as normal. What's the normal Christian life? It is to be harried and harassed all the way through this life until you're brought to Jesus at the end. I heard one person say in the very best sermon I have ever heard preached at, at Blue Valley Baptist Church since I've been here that when you make Jesus your king, everything opposed to Jesus becomes your enemy and scripture teaches us that everything is opposed to Jesus. Tribulations, you need to see them for what they are. They're normal. Opposition for following Jesus is normal. But seeing them for what they are also means that you need to see what you have in Jesus. The Jesus followers of Smyrna had been impoverished. Likely, 
because they had become unemployable because of their commitment to Jesus or merchants refused to trade with them because of their commitment to Jesus. That had happened in other parts of the world where Christianity had landed, happened actually in Jerusalem. But Jesus, he says, has made them rich in him. So in the trial they faced, they had everything they needed in Jesus. They were opulently, extravagantly wealthy in Jesus. In fact, that's actually a sanctifying part of a trial. It helps you see that Jesus is enough. And we all need to see that Jesus is enough. Many of you might know what a struggle it was for my son and his wife to have a child. Years of infertility and then um, several miscarriages. But after an uneventful pregnancy, we had started at least to be hopeful, if not outright confident, that we were about to welcome a baby into the Lynch family. But the Sunday before my granddaughter was born, Danny went several hours without feeling her move. And the doctors asked her to come in. And I suspected suspected it was the normal slowing down that happens before birth, but I didn't know. I'm not that kind of doctor. But for about an hour, nobody in the Lynch family breathed. And uh, I did what I do when I get stressed. I, I went outside and started fiddling in the yard. I started talking to Jesus. And in that tense time, Jesus very clearly impressed me with his enoughness. I, I didn't quit praying for a healthy baby and a healthy birth. But I knew when I walked out of that yard that whatever we found out, Jesus would be enough. And so while I'd never want to go through an hour like that again, I wouldn't trade that hour for anything. Because even after all these years of being a follower of Jesus, that, that temporary trial and uncertainty deepened my conviction that Jesus is enough. The next thing I want to touch on about seeing tribulations for what they are is that we need to see their source. Satan, he hates God's people. He seeks to destroy God's people. He steals, he kills, he destroys this whole Jews who are not but are really a synagogue of Satan bit in this passage is Jesus saying these folks think that they're serving the God of Abraham. These folks think they're serving me, but they're not. They are actually tools of Satan to persecute you. They're serving Satan, not the God of Abraham. And so... We are reminded here not to lose sight in a trial that you're not suffering at God's hands. You're suffering at Satan's hands. And then finally, see tribulations for what they are by seeing their set limits. The imprisonment that many in this church were facing had a set limit. There was a line for that trial that it would not cross because God had determined the length and breadth of that trial. No trial lasts forever. It would be over. And true, it was going to end in death for many who were hearing this letter. But it would end. And when it did, and if our trial ends in an exit from this life, then 
Suffering helps us see this one last thing. It helps us see the future for what it will be. Everyone will die once. But Jesus reminds us that his followers who are faithful to the end will not die twice. They won't experience final judgment in hell for their rejection of Christ. Instead, those who are faithful to Jesus, regardless of the cost, will receive the crown of life. English has just one clunky word for crown. Crown. And so when we read it here, we have that same English clunkiness that's kicking in. But in John's language the one to whom this revelation is being given, there are two words for crown. There is the word diadem, which is a reference to a royal crown, the kind that kings wear, that royalty wears. And then there's another kind of crown. Uh, The word for that is stephanos, and it's a victory wreath. It's, It's what's given to people when they complete a race, which these uh, citizens would have been very familiar with because Smyrna was the host of Olympic-style games. I like to run a lot. Actually, I like to eat a lot, and so I run a lot. That's actually how that works now that I think about it. And um, in order to kind of engage me to keep running a lot, at least before the pandemic, I ran, um, I ran a race every month, forced me to get out of bed every morning so that I'd run, so that I'd be in a race. And uh, I hadn't, hadn't done that um, since, the, since the pandemic began. But let me tell you how I choose uh, a race. Uh, I choose a race based on um, will they give a medal to everybody that finishes and is it cool looking? I mean, that's, that's the thing. And so, and so I'll, I'll, I'll pay the money to to show up for one of these races, and I'll run them. And I try to run two uh, half marathons a year, spring and, and a fall. And um, here's what I've noticed about that. Um, when I stumble, wheeze my way across the finishing line, uh, they'll give me a medal. And it occurs to me, you know, that's the exact same medal that they're given the person who finished an hour ahead of me. I mean, it's the same medal. Then it occurs to me this. Uh, this is the same medal that... Uh, the person who finishes an hour or two hours behind me is going to get. It's the great equalizer. What I'm trying to tell you is that I'm all about the participation trophy. I really am. Love it. But here's the thing. When you follow Jesus and you engage the race, when you finish, whether you're known to the world or whether you're anonymous to everybody, you get the same prize. You get the crown of life. And you don't get it because you have sucked it up and been able to finish the race. You get it because the Jesus who drug you sometimes kicking and screaming across that line hands to you his life, which you get to share in for eternity. I want you to stop and think with me about what is ultimately true about you. I mean, we get all wrapped up in the 70 or 80 years that we're going to have here. But don't lose sight of the fact that 10 billion years from now, you will still be alive. And all of this will be a fading thing because for 10 billion years, you will have every single second of your existence 
seen right in front of you that Jesus is enough and that trials, trials are limited and trials served a sovereign purpose to bring us and drive us closer to him. So at the end of the day, following Jesus, whatever it takes, is worth it. So see him for who he is, see tribulations for what they are, and see the future for what it will be. Let's pray together.